Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, some surprising poll numbers ahead of the August primary. The Biden administration initiates a purge of Trump loyalists, while Republicans move to downplay the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. All of that, plus how you can keep your kids safe from COVID. But first, joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich, and you've been looking into the connection between this homeless encampment, or these two homeless encampments near Interstate 90, and the recent rash of uh, attacks on motorists. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you been able to find out? Well, on Thursday, the state, the city, and Washington State Patrol embarked on what we know as a sweep of the one camp that's been in question. It's a camp that sits right above I-90 on the eastbound lanes as it enters the Mount Baker Tunnel. Uh, it's a camp that's been there for years. And talking to the campers in there, you know, the, the the dean, his name is Eric Jordan, he's been there for four years, living at that same spot in relatively peace and quiet until all these incidents of rock throwing started appearing right along I-90 there at the Rainier Avenue on-ramps and off-ramps. Um, and so what has happened is that the rock throwing has been going on for a couple of weeks. Um, as of Thursday... Uh, the uh, King County numbers for rock throwing throughout King County were 208 incidents for this year. That's wow. a lot. But they can't they can't number, narrow it down to that particular area of I-90 right near Rainier Avenue. The, uh, the Washington State Patrol who follows and tracks all this says they're unable to do that at this moment. But needless to say, there's been a lot of incidents there almost on a daily basis mm-hmm. over the last week. And so it got to the point where... Uh, something had to be done. People were calling something to be done. And what what the connection that was made was to the camp was that the WSP in their investigation said two people who had been arrested for allegedly throwing rocks in that area were associated with the homeless camps in the area. There's only really one big one, and that's the one I was just describing. Mm -hmm. Um, But talking to the residents there... They say that's not them. They know who the guy was, who, who one of the guys who's been doing it, who was arrested last a week ago, but let go, never was booked in a jail, and they're wondering why. They all watched him be arrested. We still do not have a reason why he was booked. Now, it's been confirmed by county prosecutors as well as the camp residents that the person has some mental issues. I've actually come in contact with this person, mm-hmm. too, and see that, I'll just tell you, he's just not all there. And so typically when this happens, if someone gets arrested, instead of going to jail, they take them to Harborview for review, and then there's this gigantic loophole when the person uh, gets reviewed and they deem that he's not a threat to himself. They cannot pick up the phone and call police. Hey, the guy you just brought in that you arrested, he's walking out the door. So I'm just speculating a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's what may have happened to this guy. I'm pretty feel, I feel pretty good about that. But anyway, they've associated these rock-throwing incidents with this one camp. So what happened is once that association was made by the Washington State Patrol, there was a reason to target the camps in terms of a removal, camps that people have complained about for a while. And, and so they're, they're conducting this sweep. Where are the people going? And, and how many people are there involved in this encampment? There are about 15 or so that's been living, that was living there this week, that were living there so this week. So it wasn't a huge camp. No, it's not a huge camp. It's tucked away in like these terraces that you, it, 
you could see it from the highway, but they got cement walls around it. It's very confined. You, mm-hmm. The garbage and everything you can see, you can hardly see. You have to be right on top of it at the viewpoint. So they've been there for a while. Well, what happened is I made a call on Monday to Senator Hobbs, who Steve Hobbs is the chair of the Washington State Senate Transportation Committee. He holds the, you know, basically he hold, that committee holds the purse strings to WashDOT. And he's been on the case of WashDOT to try and remove these camps from the highways. So when I called him and said, what do you think about this, uh, this association now with the homeless camp? And he said, I'll, I'll get back to you. And so during the day, calls were made between his staff, WashDOT, Washington State Patrol. And then that night, according to my sources, Chief Batiste made the call that it was a public safety uh, hazard and immediately the next day the signs were put out by not just the city of Seattle but the state of Washington to remove this camp and it's too it's kind of different because you have two different removal agencies well that's what I was going to say is, is it sitting on city property DOT property it's on DOT state property okay but Tuesday the secretary of transportation said you know what we'd like to have these camps removed and they go to housing not just down the street we want them to go to housing but we're not equipped to do that we're not even equipped to do that with resources to get people a hotel room. The state is not equipped to do that. We have to rely on the city of Seattle. And Mayor Durkin last week also said, you know what? We want the state of Washington to step up to the plate to handle these the camps on their own, maybe even without our assistance. You know, And she's talking dollar signs at that point. Maybe the mayor didn't realize that as of this month, the state legislature, in its last session, approved $3 million to reimburse cities like Seattle to clean up camps along highway. And that's so when the word got out, they posted the signs, the cleanup was done on Thursday, and S. Washdot is going to repay Seattle its money for the cleanup. So, so what happened then to the people that were in the encampment? They moved not to hotels or shelters. They moved down the street. And we visited them. They moved so, about four blocks away. So it, it you you push one down, another pops up somewhere else. It's ex- like whack-a-mole. That's exactly what happened. I mean, I hate to say that whack-a-mole analogy, but that's exactly what happened. They just they went and didn't want to take shelters. They hate. They all had bad experiences in shelters. Only one person who had some. Um, uh, mental issues was offered a hotel room um, and re- had resisted all day just to remove this to had resisted all day from leaving the camp but they all basically the whole camp just moved down the street about four blocks they've set up camp ironically they set up on land that the city plans to put in a mixed use business low-income housing on this block it's not constructed yet but that's where they moved to a place where low-income housing is going to be built. So, so why didn't the 15 or so people, because it's not a large number, you're not dealing with dozens and dozens of people, why didn't they get moved into temporary housing, the you know the, well, the, once the again, stuff that, that Dow Constantine, Sia, uh, you know, Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin have, have all said, we're building this out, we're spending a lot of money on this, we're buying the hotel rooms, we're doing this. Why didn't they get moved there? Well, once again, in this world where we're supposed to have cooperation, we're not having it. Outreach workers told the campers there were no hotel rooms in the city of Seattle, but there are hotel rooms in the county uh, we've already talked about hotels mm-hmm. opening up, but they did not have access to those. So the the, for want of a better term, the the sweep team, the the what used the, to be called the navigation yeah. team, didn't have any way of referring to the referring the the people in the encampments 
to temporary housing. That's what the campers have told me. This is multiple campers have told me this, uh, that they were told there aren't any hotel rooms available in the city, but there are in the county, but we don't have access to them. So you have so many layers of bureaucracy trying to figure this out. It's on DOT property. Well, now it's the city that's doing all of the uh, outreach, outreach and, yeah. and, and, and the funding. And then, well, now because the county's the doing this. Because do the state can't do it. And then where's the regional homeless authority in all of this? Well, they're not up and running yet. They're just like putting the training wheels on the bike. But we've spent millions upon millions of dollars over the course of how many years to get this going? The right now, they're still hiring. They're still getting their feet established. And you have the county and the cities doing their own thing. And that's where we sit. So this even came up this week during a Washington Transportation Commission meeting where the commissioners questioned Washdot, why do we have to rely on the cities? Why can't we do it ourselves? And the the head of Washdot, which is basically the Secretary of Transportation, says, we don't have the resources to do it. You know, we'd like to move people off a highway, but we can't do it. So there was some frustration there. And the commission, one commissioner said, people see a lack of coordination. And guess what? There's a lack of coordination. We need to fix this. So, again, bureaucracy it just reeks in all, the, all of this. In the meanwhile, the PS to all this is that they're going to start putting boulders in the place where those tents were. Boulders that they're currently placing underneath uh, I-90 at Rainier Avenue right now. The big boulders, like, you know, several feet wide. Mm-hmm. So this is and, so they're and, trying and to prevent this from happening again. Absolutely. People moving they back make in. no bones about it. Prevent it from happening again. You can't camp there. And then when the campers heard that, they said, it's more important for them to put in boulders than to give us a place to live. That's really cruel. That's why the system's all messed up. And that's what they were telling me. From the political perspective, this seems like there is just a serious serious lack of leadership on this issue because you have as we said the city of seattle's wanting to do one thing the county's wanting to do one thing the state's wanting to do a one thing each has their different priorities each has their different funding levels and what they're supposedly responsible for then you have the homeless authority who's there spent millions of dollars but isn't doing anything where's the leadership and you have washington state patrol who only basically takes care of the highway but not yeah. the embankments and that's the city issue but that's part of that but that's state land i mean it is a mess and 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 so this is a huge power vacuum someone whether it's the mayor or the the county commissioner or, or excuse me county executive or even the governor could come mm-hmm. in and just say this is what we're doing mm-hmm. and why hasn't that happened? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, off the top of my head, everything always comes down to money. The uh, city of Seattle is going to spend $200 million this year on homelessness. The city, the, the state allowed $3 million to remove camps off its property. Clearly not enough. Yeah. And it doesn't have the resources to do it. I think it is a matter of leadership and priorities in terms of it comes down to the city council, it comes down to the mayor's priorities, the allowance of people to camp on these areas. And I think there's some, I don't know if the word would be disingenuous remarks by the mayor, but when she says to the state, hey, you need to shape up and clean up your property just like we're doing with our property. That's debatable right there when yeah. you look at city parks. Yeah. But for her to say that, because we don't hear this problem about in Bellevue along the highways or in Auburn or, you know, I'm calling, I'm going just staying within King County mm-hmm. here up along Shoreline. I mean, yeah, there are a few, but not as concentrated as in Seattle because that's where a lot of the people who are in shelter come for services. So for the mayor to say, hey, state, you better clean up your act. Well, it's kind of an offshoot because 
lot of the act that, uh, that, that she's accused of doing, the homeless, allowing the homeless camps, that's happening on city property as well. So, and, and this is going to dovetail into our next segment. You think this is going to affect the mayor's race? Oh, well, we had a poll that said the number one priority for all the candidates is homelessness. And yeah. we'll get into that coming up in just a few moments. We have to take a quick break, but we'll have more with Matt Markovich when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, joined once again by Como's Matt Markovich, who, uh, which by the way, did you enjoy your week off of vacation last week? I did. I did. And fortunately for me, I get another week coming up. <laughs> You're just making it more difficult for me to produce this show, aren't you? <laughs> but uh, anyway, we were talking in the last segment about uh, the homelessness issue and, and how there's finally some movement at least when it comes to the encampment near I-90 where a lot of rocks have been thrown at motorists. Uh, But this is happening mostly in the city of Seattle, Mm -hmm. and we are just a few days away from the primary election for Seattle mayor and two city council seats. And we talked a little bit about it last week when you were on vacation, but want to dive more into this poll that was conducted by uh, the Northwest Progressive Institute and the uh, the group Change Research. Uh, first and foremost, the mayor's race, Bruce Harrell, Lorena Gonzalez, not surprising. They're the top two. But when you look at some of the other numbers as well, it, it just seems like no one else is really gaining any traction. No, the numbers have kind of remained the same, uh, given some other candidate polls that we've, been talk- we've talked about before, with this poll saying Bruce Harrell at 20% and Lorena Gonzalez at 12%, and Colleen Echohawk at 10 Jocelyn Farrell at 6 and Andrew Grant Johnson, Houston, excuse me, 6%. I think in this poll, as well as other polls we're going to talk about in the future, it's, uh, it's the undecided, given that we're just a couple weeks away. That's that's really the deciding yeah. factor. Well, 32% said we're undecided so far. And that's about a third of the, the, the electorate. So, you know, we could swing in either direction. But if you take a look at the breakdown, you said 20% for Bruce Harrell. He is, by Seattle standards, the more conservative candidate in the race. Mm-hmm. And then you, you look at Jessen Farrell, and, and you and I were at one of her press conferences about homelessness uh, a month or two ago. She seems a, a little hawkish on that issue as well. I'm guessing if she falls out, which she is likely to do, her 6% would likely go to Bruce Harrell. Whereas mm-hmm. Lorena Gonzalez, Andrew Grant Houston, Colleen Echo Hawk, the three of them are more in 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 the far left camp. Mm-hmm. You combine those three together, and now you suddenly have Lorena Gonzalez overtaking Bruce Harrell in the general. True, but again, w- that's with one third not saying anything. Yeah. You know, uh, so I think when it comes down to Bruce Harrell and Lorena Gonzalez, which we're expecting to happen in the in the primary. That 32%, obviously, it's a swing vote right there. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think you're right in terms of where Colleen Echohawk and Justin Farrell and Andrew Grant Houston supporters will go. That's just a couple percentage points. We're almost at a dead even here. Yeah. And then you still have a, a third of the electorate out there not, not deciding, given what we're, based, we're, what we're speculating here with this yeah. poll. I think if, we, if those two candidates emerge, it's going to come down to Lorena Gonzalez's record and her current record, you know, what she's voted on the last year and a half or so. But do you think that... Versus Bruce Harrell, which arguably we could say, well, what has he really initiated over during his tenure, which is not substantial compared to what she's done, but he's pretty middle of the road. 
uh, when it comes to that. You think it becomes then a referendum on Lorena Gonzalez and her tenure as the I, council I, president? I, that's my that's my thinking. Is that's fresher in voters' minds? Bruce Harrell's been out of the picture for a couple of years. He's well received. You know, everyone, he's well known in terms of political circles here, as well as the general public. I think people know who he is. Lorena Gonzalez benefits from the latest and greatest because she's been in the news for the last couple of years, so that's she's more top of mind. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because there has been significant pushback to what the city council has been doing in recent years, even though that liberal, progressive wing of the party won re-election two years ago. I think uh, Lorena Gonzalez, who's super smart, has the backing of a lot of um, union supporters. She's going to have to overcome what's happened over the last year with defunding the the startup Seattle tax, supporting that. So again, there's big business right there, maybe mm-hmm. wanting to put some money in the other p- coffin. Uh, I shouldn't say coffin. Coffers. <laughs> Coffers, yeah. <laughs> that sounds that, that like may be prophetic with, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the results of the yeah. election. But, uh, you know, in addition to the race for Seattle mayor, uh, there's also the race for Seattle city attorney. And that one is fairly interesting because you have the progressive incumbent challenged by someone who's even further to the left of him. And then you have more as as you described her uh, a gadfly in ann davison sattler or ann davison as she's going by now again this race i think is off people's radar it still is the poll shows that 16 percent support of those surveyed 16 percent supported the incumbent pete holmes nicole thompson kennedy 14 percent and davison 14 percent so it's really neck and neck not sure was 53%. So clearly, people don't have yeah. an idea on who they're going to go but here. That but that is still, a very influential position when it comes to the issue of recidivism, these minor crimes that keep happening throughout yeah. the city, that sort of thing. Yeah. I also think this is one where someone's standing in the polling booth and they've heard the name Pete Holmes and they've heard some controversy, but he, he hasn't done anything personally. Um, he's not involved would, in a scandal. Yeah, there's no scandalous with him personally. It's just decisions he's made as city attorney. And I think that at that point they'll go, well, okay, I think I can go for the incumbent. Because mm-hmm. the two others are really fairly unknown, especially when it comes to the city attorney position. And again, you may may ask, well, how are these people who really have no big legal uh, background like Pete Holmes does? Well, Anybody could be elected a city attorney. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have a legal background. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other one, too, we saw that Nikita Oliver kind of running away with things in the open seat for the ninth position, which is the at-large seat being vacated by Lorena Gonzalez as she runs for mayor. Yeah, and actually I thought that was a surprise. I mean, with, again, 50% saying they're not sure, so half of the people who are surveyed don't, don't know, but Nikita Oliver at 26%, and Sarah Nelson, the owner of a Fremont Brewery, uh, who's run for account, city mm-hmm. council before, at 11%, and and, uh, and Brianna Thomas at 6%, who is a, uh, basically a staff worker at, at the city hall area. Um, and I'm not downplaying that at all, yeah. but just saying that's kind of her general position. But Nikita Oliver at 26%, and I think, again, that's a name recognition thing. She's been in the news throughout the last couple of years as an activist an activist he also ran for mayor mm-hmm. came in third with jenny durkin yep. and carrie moon ahead of her 
uh, in terms of the primary. And she's pretty progressive. I mean, well, she, yeah. she she makes Lorena Gonzalez look much more towards the center. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But and again, this is a this is not a District Three Shamasawant territorial. Uh, vote here. This is a citywide vote. This is an at-large position, so the entire city is going to vote for her, um, which that's why I, I found it surprising that at 26%, because I thought Sarah Nelson, other polls showed Sarah Nelson a little bit higher, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a in, in a leadership position almost in other polling, and has obviously support of business. Um, if Nikita Oliver can drive that wedge in between what she does and what uh, Sarah um, Nelson is, her background is, um, that'll be interesting. You know, and we'll see if that plays out. But again, it's fun to talk about these polls. But here we are, just a couple of weeks ahead of the uh, election, and this is a fifty percent not sure. Yeah, who to vote for? It means people are paying attention to other things at this point. But uh, mm-hmm. to to kind of wrap things up, let's circle back to what we talked about in the first segment. And that is the issue of homelessness and the lack of leadership around that issue in the city of Seattle. Who benefits? Who doesn't benefit from that in these races? Well, I think the incumbents do not benefit from it. Homelessness being the number one issue. So it hurts Lorena Gonzalez. It's going to hurt Lorena. And it could also hurt, you know, Bruce Harrell in a way. Yeah. And someone to just go ahead and vote for somebody who's never been in leadership positions at the city of Seattle. Um, and that could happen also at the city council level. I mean, I thought it was interesting that Teresa Mosqueda, who's the expected winner for her race, she's running again, that Seattle Times endorsed everybody in, in certain races, but had no endorsement in that race, where she's expected to win, most likely will win, but the Seattle Times, which does play an influential role in all this, decided not to endorse anybody in that council race. So I think there's going to be that push to not vote in some of the incumbents because of the issue of homelessness and how it's been handled. Then again, they look towards somebody else. What are they saying about homelessness? You know, only Casey Sixkiller, who is out in this poll, not even in the running here for mayor, he's the one who actually has a real concrete plan that's very expensive to hand create more housing for the homeless. He actually has a plan. Uh, As but, opposed to just rhetoric from the rest yeah, of the candidates. but... It's, you know, billions of dollars. Unfortunately, he might be a realist and all that, but no one's going to vote for a candidate who's putting out a plan that's going to cost taxpayers billions of dollars on homelessness, which people are already upset at how much money is being spent so far. Well, we'll have to see it all plays out. We've got the primary coming up on August 3rd, and then the top two move on to the general election in November. Matt Markovich, thank you so much. Always happy to be here. When we come back, the Pentagon undergoes a purge when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. The Pentagon is now in the news because Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is doing a number of moves. He's purging Trump loyalists and taking initial steps towards reasserting civilian control of the military. Covering this story for Politico is Lara Seligman, and she joins us now via Zoom. And I I guess first off, uh, the question I would have is, why the purge of Trump loyalists? I mean, that that sounds like something that uh, the previous administration would do. Right. So the background here is that at the end of the Trump administration, they actually did their own purge of the defense advisory boards and they fired a bunch of longtime members and what they did instead was they appointed at the very last minute some trump loyalists for example anthony tata who is a top acting pentagon official who came under fire last 
year for tweets calling President Obama a terrorist. And another example is Scott O'Grady, who is a former Air Force pilot who's used his Twitter account to spread false claims that the election was stolen. So that's a couple of examples. Now, this created a lot of controversy at the time, understandably, uh, because these people do have quite a bit of influence over policymaking on key defense issues. So what Secretary Austin did just a couple days after his confirmation is that he essentially dissolved or suspended the operations of dozens of these advisory boards in a broad effort to oust these last minute appointees by the Trump administration. And what he did was he instituted this broad based zero based review to look at these panels and reconstitute them and basically start from scratch. So what's happening now is that he is restarting these five major advisory boards and he's going to be filling them with some prior members and some new members. But the the most important thing is that the Trump loyalists are going to be gone. So what did these advisory boards do? So basically they're about 42 of them overall. Uh, the big biggest ones are focused on policy, health, innovation, science, and business. And they're filled with, you know, up to a dozen members each. And they are former officials or top scientists, people who give advice to the defense secretary on major policy issues. So you have the Defense Policy Board, for example, you have the Defense Innovation Board also, which gives a lot of input on big innovative projects that are coming up. Um, So they actually, while they don't make policy, they are filled with people that have a lot of influence in their fields, are very respected in their fields, and they they give advice to, to the Defense Secretary. Just as an example, Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, was on the Defense Innovation Board for a long time. So, but isn't this kind of par for the course for any new administration to clear out the loyalists of the old president? No, this is not a normal thing to do with the Defense Advisory Boards. This is These are boards that generally are not political. They are very specific to the Pentagon. This isn't something that you usually hear making news uh, in in normal spaces uh, on main on main websites, but uh, in this case, the Trump administration decided that it was going to use the Pentagon and the Defense Advisory Boards as a vehicle to get in some of these loyalists who they weren't able to confirm to big cabinet or um, sub cabinet posts. For example, I mentioned Anthony Tata. A little bit earlier, he Trump actually appointed him to be uh, one of the number three Pentagon policy official, but he was blocked by the Senate because of his tweets. Pretty much, I mean, this is a very controversial guy. So what uh, what the president and his allies did instead was try to get these people permanently confirmed to these defense advisory boards. It, it's pretty much a desperate move that the Trump administration had done because they weren't able to get a lot of these people into confirmable positions. In addition, Lloyd Austin, you write in your piece that's available at politico.com, he's taking the steps to reassert civilian control of the military, which uh, on the surface sounds okay. Well, we've always had civilian control of the military, but then again, Lloyd Austin is a former commander general uh, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a very good point and one that many people have pointed out. But in, in fact, probably because of his history as a general, Lloyd Austin has made it a 
top priority to restore civilian control of the military. And this was something that kind of got out of balance in the Trump administration because there were so many vacancies in the Pentagon, so many acting officials, so many people that held top positions that were not really qualified for the positions. For example, the the person that ended up as army secretary at the beginning of the Trump administration was maybe his third, fourth choice. The person who ended up doing policy making for the Pentagon was way, way down on the list. Um, so what happened was that the generals, the joint staff, they sort of filled a lot of the vacancies that happened. And what sort of happened by default was that the generals ended up making a lot of the policy decisions. And so what Lloyd Austin has been doing is trying to put that balance back where it should be. So he appointed some really strong Pentagon civilians, such as his deputy, Kathleen Hicks, who is very well respected and has a long history of uh, doing research and papers on China, for example. Um, and then he has really strong other uh, officials at civilian levels in the Pentagon as well. So I think that I think that in part because of his history as a general, Lloyd Austin has really made this his top priority in order to satisfy lawmakers and others that were concerned exactly about what you pointed out. And all of this comes just as we learned that the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was worried that President or former President Trump would attempt a coup to stay in power. So this isn't really a good news cycle for the Pentagon over the last couple of weeks. Right. You you could certainly say that. Uh, General Milley has certainly been in the limelight recently, what with his comments on critical race theory and then his reported comments about worrying that democracy was on the brink of collapse during the Trump administration, which he has not confirmed or denied. And he refused to comment about that uh, during a press briefing earlier this week. But I think that in overall, General Milley has made the argument that he his top priority is trying to keep the military out of politics. And one thing that we're reminded of is when he made that walk with President Trump across Lafayette Square last summer, he later admitted that that was a big mistake and that that inappropriately politicized the military. And that is something that this Pentagon is really trying very hard to stay out of. So with all of this news happening, how is this affecting the rank and file? Because troop morale is something that's very important to the generals. Well, I think that overall the rank and file tries to stay out of politics as well. But it's certainly something that is being talked about every day amongst the troops. Um, I think I think that a lot of them feel like the military has been inappropriately politicized, particularly in the Trump era and now now sort of the leftovers from that with lawmakers on either in either party really politicizing all issues it seems like i mean there's nothing that is left untouched you have january 6th being politicized you have critical race theory now being politicized so it's really hard for the military to escape this politicization right now and it's not it's not really clear that the leaders are doing an especially good job of keeping the military out of politics. But it's but it's also clear that they're in a very, very tough position, even now with President Trump gone. 
All right, Laura Seligman with Politico. Thank you so much for joining us, and you can read more of her work at Politico.com. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Still to come, Republicans continue to block investigations into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, where the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said this week a committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection will do the job it's set out to do. This after Republican leader Kevin McCarthy appointed two staunch Trump allies to the committee, which Nancy Pelosi promptly rejected. Joining us now is ABC's Catherine Falders from Washington, D.C., and this has already become such a political mess. Is the committee going to have any legitimacy when it starts its hearings? Well, it's a good question right now. Everything is so uh, politicized at the same time, you know, Speaker Pelosi has appointed one Republican to the committee, uh, Liz Cheney. Um, There's some talk behind the scenes that maybe she will appoint some other Republicans um, and fill those five slots that were given to uh, Republican leader McCarthy uh, to fill. That's all uh, unclear right now. We know there's multiple conversations going on behind the scenes as to whether that will happen. Uh, Look, I think she has to make some moves on this by next week by... um, by Tuesday, uh, because the committee has their first hearing scheduled for that day. It's still scheduled to go on and and move forward here. Um, But right now, we're pretty much at a standstill. Uh, Speaker Pelosi says, no, you can't have these two appointments. The appointments who we're talking about are Representatives Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. She says it compromises the integrity of the investigation. McCarthy says it's an egregious abuse of power. He's threatened to boycott the committee and have Republicans hold their own investigation unless all five of his choices are seated. So that's uh, that's kind of where we are on Capitol Hill. Now, there's no question that Jim Jordan has been a a staunch and vocal supporter of pretty much anything that President Trump or former President Trump wanted to do. He has turned a lot of uh, hearings into, uh, I don't want to say sideshows, but a lot of yelling and screaming and shouting. And Mm -hmm. uh, that was the reason that Kevin McCarthy appointed him to that committee. But Nancy Pelosi had to know that McCarthy was going to do that. And McCarthy had to know Pelosi was going to reject that. So is this really the most we've gamed this out? Yeah, it's a lot of political gamesmanship here. And look, I think McCarthy never wanted this particular committee to begin with, right? This is a Pelosi-created committee. She kind of lays lays the rules and sets the, the framework for who's on here, how many people McCarthy gets to appoint. But remember, it was the Republicans who essentially voted down um, the bipartisan commission um, to investigate the attacks. That that 9-11 style uh, commission is what they were calling it. 35 Republicans voted for it, but you're right. Who, who makes the best, the best move here or the next move here? Uh, what's most politically savvy? Is, you know, is this going to have any independence at all, right? Speaker Pelosi was asked during a, during a news conference, how can she ensure... Uh, the American people that this will be bipartisan and they can trust this investigation. And she cited some polls saying that Republicans still want to know what happened on January 6th. Uh, But the reality is, you know, how do you make this look uh, nonpartisan? I think she is deliberating with her team about what to do here, what Republicans uh, to appoint. And I think at the same time, There were 35 Republicans who voted for that previous independent commission that Republicans ultimately voted down. But she's probably going through that list of 35 and saying, 
Are there any, is there anybody on here that I could appoint? Still to come. As the Delta variant spreads, what about your kids? I'm Brian Calvert with what the experts say about keeping unvaccinated kids safe. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally, now that the Delta variant is making up nearly half of all COVID infections statewide, how do you keep your kids safe from it? Como's Brian Calvert found a few answers. There's been a lot of talk about those who qualify for a vaccine, but choose not to get it. Washington kids 12 and under don't have a choice. Approval for this age group isn't until September at the earliest. What's a parent to do in the meantime? We're just trying to still be careful and with also mixing in some normalcy again in our lives and getting out, doing things outside. When we go inside, we try and wear masks still. That's about all we can do. Then there's this mom. When I look at the studies, uh, the kids in that age group are at lowest risk and they seem to recover really well from it. So we've just been living our life like normal. Pediatrician Dr. Sarah DeHulst asks why would you take that chance? It is a weeks long sometimes inconvenience in your family for one child to catch COVID um, because all the other families, family members are exposed. And so then potentially can't work. When Washington was reopened June 30th, it gave a lot of parents a false sense of security. The virus didn't make note of the calendar, and thanks to a little complacency and the easiest spreading variant to date, COVID has a grip on us once again. And I see the light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic, but we are not through the tunnel yet. We have one big cold and flu season that's about to start in a couple months, and I think that is the end of the tunnel. The advice is pretty straightforward, and you've heard most of it before. But when it comes to your unvaccinated kids, the best way to keep them safe is have them wash their hands often, avoid large groups, and always wear a mask when indoors outside of the home. Speaking of that mask. I've seen two ear infections in the last 15 months, and I typically see two per day during cold and flu season. So the masking and the hand washing and the distancing, regardless of the concerns about COVID made a huge difference. Brian Calvert, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.